Well, in the back of your pews there, you'll see, uh, and also at the Welcome Center, you'll see a prayer card uh, that you can fill out if you have a prayer request. Uh, you can fill that card out uh, there, and you can drop it in the offering box, actually in the very back of the room, uh, sometime today. Uh, if you're watching online, I know we have some folks that uh, view the service and participate that way. Uh, and so those folks, they can go, uh, and you can do this during the week, certainly, johnknox.church, and see near the top, center right, you'll see a little line there that says, uh, for prayer request, you can click on that link and fill out your prayer request and, and turn it right in. Jimmy, thanks for the advertisement about the prayer request, uh, but whether you go paper or electronic here, uh, folks are praying for you. Real people, actual people. You're not just putting words on a piece of paper or typing them into a screen uh, somewhere, sending them off somewhere on the internet for somebody to, to magically see, but actual people will look at that and pray for those, those requests. We call it in shorthand a prayer chain, but the groups that encompass that include a number of individuals here in this congregation, members, uh, people who form our group of deacons here at the church, uh, our elders pray when they gather once a month, the staff each week when we gather, uh, we pray. But these are real people who are here in this congregation who pray uh, over those requests. If you're one of those people that pray for the requests, can you just raise your hand right now? If you're someone who's, you get those requests, you see them, so you can look around, you can see there's hands all over the place, right? These people are praying for you when you fill those things out or you drop those things in there. But that's not everyone who's praying for you. That's not everyone. That's just a small sampling. John 17 adds one more voice, an important voice, uh, to the prayer team, the prayer chain that's praying for each one of us. That Jesus prays, we know this is true. We see that throughout the Gospels. Shows him on many occasions praying. But what might surprise us to hear, as we see in this text, is that Jesus is praying for us. That Jesus himself prays for us. You can go ahead and personalize that for a moment. Might add your name there. Jesus prays for Jimmy. Feels kind of good to say it. Go ahead and say it. Not Jimmy. You can put your own name there. <laughs> you had enough time? Okay. That's clear when we read the entire chapter of John 17. But in this first half of the chapter, here's what we see. First we see Jesus in verse 1. He prays, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. The prayer actually begins by locating itself at the time when, quote, the hour has come. That's pretty dramatic. And if you read through John, particularly as you approach chapter 12 and verse 23, you begin to see this idea shows up. Jesus starts talking about this coming hour. And it signals not only something big is coming, but that Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to a close. And so we hear that type of language, this hour. We know that that thing is closing down and a new phase is going to take shape and, and come to pass here. And that that new phase is marked by the events that will unfold in that Passion Weekend. So when Jesus is speaking here through the narrative, in just a, a few days, this really is going to come to pass. We're going to see this stuff just in the next 24, 48 hours, this sort of thing come into being. And of course, something will be seen in all this. It's what God is up to. God will be put on full display at this moment. But also Jesus. When the hour is complete, there's something revealed about who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to. That will all be confirmed. The words, the messages, and we think about that empty tomb on Easter Sunday. It's going to confirm and it's going to, it's going to validate that message. That Jesus is, in a lot of ways, going to be vindicated uh, through that process. And so Jesus prays that 
this would be so. And Jesus is very much on mission, we can say, in his statements here. But he goes on. He continues to pray. It says in verses 2 and 3, Jesus prays about eternal life. Eternal life. Of course, Jesus has been talking about eternal life all the way back to chapter 3. Remember his encounter with Nicodemus, if you know how the story goes. He's talking about uh, this idea of eternal life. Of course, John 3.16 is one of those texts that falls right in that chapter. And as I imagine, many of us would presume that we know what Jesus is getting at. Ah, we know what he's talking about. Eternal life, oh, I know what that is. This must be about life after we die. And that life will be without end. But if that's all that we come up with, that's all our imagination can, can dream up here at this point, we're missing something key that John is going to identify in Jesus' words here about eternal life. Note what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, this is eternal life. Now, I would pause there just for a second and say, if someone asked you, give me a definition of eternal life, you could do a lot worse than picking out a passage that starts with, this is eternal life, and goes on to fill it out, right? You could do a lot worse than that. But he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Far from a mere, like the song goes, when we all get to heaven. And actually, like I, you learned last week, whenever a song like that comes to my mind as I'm writing, I end up watching about 10 or 15 minutes worth of YouTube videos. So that happened. But far from that, there is something to be had. There's something more here to be experienced in this present life. The lives that we inhabit right now. The lives that we live here and now. There's something to be experienced there, and it's shaped in a particular way by knowing the only true God, and it's transformed and renewed and shaped through what is accomplished in Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to hold on to that, and we're supposed to live into that, because that's what Jesus is praying for us, that we would experience that. Of course, Jesus goes on and prays in verses 4 and 5 to make sense of this connection between Jesus and the only true God. So how does he make sense of that? How can, how can we know the only true God and how can, how can that have some sort of effect on us? Uh, how is that even possible? Well, look what verse 4 talks about. There, of course, is an expectation that the Messiah or the King would attain glory. Everybody knew that. You know, the Messiah comes and will attain some sort of level of accomplishment, some kind of glory. And we can go all the way back to Psalm 72 and see this kind of promise for the Davidic King. There we read, dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. This is the type of promise in that case, which is extended over Solomon, but it's extended over the Davidic kingdom and Davidic uh, monarchs and the, the folks the Messiah would come from, that they would eventually, ultimately live into this. It would be realized in that figure. Of course, Daniel 7 as well could be applied uh, in this sense. But verse 5, Jesus prays here for a glory that's held not from something that's attained looking to the globe forward, but he's looking at a glory that goes back to something he had before creation, something that Jesus held. He's hearkening back to claims that were made in that first chapter of John's gospel about who Jesus is as one who is present there at the time of creation and a claim that's made throughout this gospel. That there speaks to a unique relationship. That speaks to a very particular proximity that Jesus has to the Father. So if someone is going to be connecting relationally the people of God 
with their God, if someone's going to do that, if someone's going to be a mediator working in that relationship, it's someone who is keenly positioned there. And Jesus is that person. And so we hear that in his prayer. In verses 6 and 8, Jesus turns his attention to his immediate followers, the disciples. And though by chapters in, this prayer will extend out to future Jesus followers as well. But here we hear the heart of Jesus for this community and his desire for them as well. He's praying, one, that they will be protected, and two, that they might experience this same kind of oneness held within the triune God, or what's oftentimes referred to as the perichoresis, that they might have that same kind of dance, that intermingling, that interconnectedness that exists. That is a closer oneness than anything that I have in any relationship. I can touch up to things like that, but I can't get close to the relationship shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus is praying for that kind of oneness with them. But why would he pray for their protection? Is faith so fragile that we need Jesus' prayers? I mean, oftentimes when we approach the prayer ministry, and am I crackling this morning? When I do this? All right. So this morning, <laughs> that doesn't solve it. I start crackling right when I do that. It must be my twitch or something that's causing a crackle sense. It's my neck. It's the new glasses. That's what's ruining it. Yes. Next pair. But here with, with Jesus, why do we need protection? We oftentimes approach a prayer request, and I, I hear this with some folks who, who think about filling out prayer requests. We wait till we're at the most dire situation before we offer a prayer request. Uh, do we need protection? Is it something so dire that we need protection from Jesus and his prayers? Well, this past week, I was listening to an episode from Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast. Does anybody listen to that? Has anybody heard of that? Besides what you just heard me say. Apparently, no one heard me just say it because no one raised their hand. But Malcolm Gladwell, he has a podcast called Revisionist History. If you're not familiar with Gladwell's work, uh, in addition to a podcast, he has written a number of popular books and has been a longtime contributor to The New Yorker. On this particular episode I listened to was the second part of a three-part broadcast examining Disney's telling of The Little Mermaid. The podcast observed that European fairy tales, Indians, have shifted since the time of the Enlightenment. Gladwell, in his interview with folks, determined that before the time, before the time of the Enlightenment, these stories almost always included a twist ending where good things would happen to a fool or someone who was undeserving. Uh, the least likely person would end up with the benefit of, of the outcome here. You know, that sounds a little bit like grace, but we, will just, we won't pause there. But since the Enlightenment, this twist ending was replaced by what's called poetic justice. Now, in the end, good things only happen to good people and bad things only to bad people. And the podcast here contends that most Disney fairy tales today follow this same pattern. I imagine that not a few of us have adopted a similar ending when it comes to faith. That that's how we, how we frame our understanding of the Christian faith. Possibly in the grand scheme that good people go to heaven. That that's how, we, that's how we understand it. And perhaps even more in the view of our own suffering and the suffering that we see around us. Like Job's friends, remember Job from the Old Testament, we may too make mistakenly conclude that the troubles of life are easily accounted for easily explained there's a direct line there's a cause and effect 
And in the midst of such trouble, we start believing that our situation mirrors our worth. It's a natural uh, byproduct of it. We measure ourselves by our misery. That somehow we deserve this suffering. Years ago, while working at a Christian summer camp, I remember singing what is now an old Amy Grant song. And I realized, yeah, it's now old. Uh, I was actually in a conversation this last week with, uh, uh, with Zach, and, and I realized as I was thinking about how long ago since I graduated from high school that this year is 30 years. So, yes, I've now passed the threshold. I'm wearing reading glasses and 30 years out of high school. <laughs> but there's a song we sang from Amy Grant, We Believe in God. You remember the song? 1993 is from her Songs from the Loft album. I know because I listened to it a bunch of times on YouTube this week. If you know the song, you know how it begins. We believe in God and we all need Jesus. That's how the song begins. But then the song gets a little edgy, at least for Amy Grant standards, and offers a line that always struck me as rather peculiar to be singing in a camp setting with kids and teens. It suddenly goes, because life is hard. All right, life gets hard, I get it. And it might not get easier. Amy Grant. I think my own denials are what created the difficulty here. I like fairy tale endings, but I think Grant's on to something. Life is indeed hard. It doesn't really get easier, not for anyone. Certainly we get it managed. We find ways to manage it, but it doesn't get easier. And Jesus' followers are not immune to this, this type of life, this, these difficulties that come. In our epistle reading, Peter writes to an early audience facing persecution. This was no fairy tale experience. Yet even so, Peter writes, remember who you are. Now, I know that's a little bit of a fairy tale thing if you've seen The Lion King. All right, I recognize that might be a fairy tale line. But he says, remember who you are. He starts out with this Beloved, remember who you are. Don't measure yourself based on your misery. He's writing to a crowd, he reminds them from the get go you're not sufferers for the kingdom, you're not the downtrodden and the beaten up. You're beloved by God. So remember that first and foremost. Don't measure yourself with your misery. He goes on to reframe your experience in their experience. He says, this is not a surprise, but rather expected. And I imagine Peter here is going to hearken back to Jesus' own words about the suffering that will come for his name's sake. And there's reason in verse uh, 13 of chapter 4 there in the epistle for, to rejoice. The suffering you experience now is keyed to your identity. Jesus' people getting the Jesus treatment. Jesus' people getting the Jesus treatment. It appears paradoxical here that you might be blessed through suffering. But Peter notes that this is consistent with Jesus' own suffering. Glory by way of the cross. Of course, that brings us back to John's gospel. And so the posture of the Christian life, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, is one of humility and waiting. We live lives of humility and waiting in due time. And as we do, we cast our cares. We pray to the one who prays for us. We're alert and we resist. We're steadfast and we're renewed each day by God's grace. This is a posture where we don't get ahead of ourselves. We don't escape the present in an attempt to inherit the future. We live boldly in the present, but we do so humbly. There's work to be done, 
And it's work to be done in real time. When I use the word real time here, I mean in the face of trouble that's real, that faces us all the time. I titled this morning's sermon uh, based off of a 1996 film, The Ghost and the Darkness. Have you seen this film? Rachel came and talked to me about it. She said the film had freaked her out. I hope this sermon doesn't freak anybody out. But this film, if you like to be scared, well, here you go. It starred Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer. And if you're not familiar with it, the screenplay tells the story, albeit a fictionalized retelling of the story, of a pair of male lions that terrorized a, a group of workers in and around Savo, Kenya, during the construction of the Uganda Mbasa Railway in 1898. The pair is remembered in the Savo, as the Savo man-eaters. And they're rightly called that because some estimates suggest that they killed upwards of over 100 people. So they terrorized these people. And the movie is about uh, this pair of lions. It doesn't end well for them, I'll just tell you that. Sorry to spoil the ending, but the, the lions don't fare well in the end. But that's how Peter pictures the trouble that stalks the Jesus community. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. It's ghost in the darkness kind of stuff. It's no wonder that, that Jesus prays for theirs and our protection. But channeling my inner preacher here, I'm going to channel my inner preacher here, there's another ghost in the darkness. See what I did there? You know where this is going, right? Okay. And that ghost, the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, contends for us and is present to us amidst the fear and challenge of any given hour. And that Spirit makes possible that beautiful work of God, the one who prays for you, the one who's available to you and present with you by the work of Jesus Christ. That's a personal guarantee. That's one who personally enacts salvation. Or as Peter says, to restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. So earlier this week, I posted an article from The Atlantic. If you saw this on Facebook, I put this out there on the church's page. It was written a couple years ago, and it was entitled, Growing My Faith in the Face, Face of Death. But I didn't know the author was going to die at the end of the week. So Tim Keller who was close to his death when he wrote this a couple years removed, but he, he died on Friday. And I'm personally grateful for Keller and his work. And I commend to you the article. It's a, I think it's a fantastic article and, and one that's uh, truly uh, uh, inspiring, if not interesting. But Keller observes this in that article. He writes, A significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed when they learn that they will die at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. One woman with cancer told me years ago, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. Cancer killed her God, is what Keller concludes there. He goes on to write, One of the first things I learned was that religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. A belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Despite my rational, conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a remarkably strong psychological denial of mortality 
Instead of acting on Dylan Thomas's advice to rage, rage against the dying of the light, I found myself thinking, what? No, I can't die. That happens to others, but not to me. When I said these outrageous words out loud, I realized that this delusion has been the actual operating principle of my heart. We don't do suffering well. Or as Paul Brand observes in The Gift of Pain, we are far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. It's a good thing that Jesus is praying for us. It's a good thing that he prays for us. Because we need it. We need it. But Jesus also prays that we become one. That we will need each other indeed. But also that there's something fundamental to our calling located in a healthy and flourishing community. I think we know the truth of this. How many faith ventures have been derailed by strife and division? How many families have been derailed by that? Jesus cares about that stuff too. And we see that in John's gospel. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with this? Well, let me suggest three things for us this morning. One is we go together. Wherever we're going, wherever we're headed, we go there together. We follow after that prayer that Jesus is praying for us for oneness, and we strive for oneness. And we also commit ourselves to pray for oneness. And we commit ourselves to oneness. Do you hear oneness enough times there? But we have to cultivate that. We have to work for that. I'm in a small group, and we meet twice a month. And there's times where I'm at home thinking, all right, we got to go to small group. All right, we got to go to small group. And I get there, and I love it. We have a great time. We have a great group, actually. But all the demands of life can beat you out of wanting to go to small group. And that's small group. That's a small thing. What about all the other things? Times in my life I have bristled at calls to, and I see this as one of the things that distract us from this oneness, but at times I've bristled against calls to practice tolerance. I've gotten the stickers in the mail and the different calls for donations and stuff. And, and I ask the question, why? Why do I bristle against that? What does that say about me? What does it say about my actual commitments to things, about love and charity and friendship, for me to bristle against that? I should be embracing that. I think for us, it's, we have to come to a place where we're just brutally honest with ourselves in order to be one. And we have to recognize that we are selfish people. And we oftentimes live out of that operating system. I live out of that. I think Peter's words to us to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves, to let Jesus' prayers take root in our heart and shape us as a community. Because there's something about it that's fundamental that will change us and transform us to be a different kind of people, to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. We'll look different. The second one is this, and it's related. We stand together. We stand together. Amidst the challenges that face us locally and globally, we stand with each other. You might say, well, that's, that takes a lot. You've got to be one to stand together. Yep, that's why this is number two. <laughs> We're already together. Now we stand together. Persecution can take a lot of forms. 
Corners where it is being felt most acutely need the resources and support of those places experiencing relative peace and prosperity. Now, we might own that as kind of a regional type of thing or a global type of thing and say, yeah, a church like John Knox Presbyterian Church located here in the suburbs, uh, we have a certain affluency and we can, we can extend that to corners of the world where there's great poverty and help them out. But I'm talking about pews on the left side of the room helping out pews on the right side of the room to recognize that we're all in this together. And corners of the Highline area where we can support other ministries. That's why we pray for other churches each week. That's just the beginning for us to link arms and to work together, to stand together, to know that persecution can beat you down and throw you out. And we want to make sure that folks are still standing at the end of the day, that they'll still stand, even when the lion comes prowling and looking for them. And the last thing I'd offer here, we go together, we stand together, but together we pray. We follow the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we become a praying people. But we do it together. We do it towards common goals and common purposes. It's not to satisfy some kind of spiritual chore chart, all right? You got your chore chart up. Like, oh, did I pray today? It's not to do that. But rather to connect ourselves with the one who prays for us and to also connect and link our hearts with one another. I can come up with a lot of reasons why I don't like somebody else. But when I start praying for them, there's a softening effect that happens. And so we commit ourselves to that softening. How does that take shape and what does that prayer look like on an individual level? Not often will you hear me say it from the pulpit, but I think the Book of Order has some great things to say. It's a tremendous resource that we have in our denomination. And I want to read a, a, a section here to you um, in, in this sermon that relates specifically to the, this, the importance of daily prayer or prayer in the daily life. It says this, We respond to God's grace through the gift of prayer. The Christian life is one of constant prayer as the challenge of everyday discipleship requires daily disciplines of faith. Prayer is a way of opening ourselves to God who desires communication and communion with us. You see how that fits with the text? goes on to write, Prayer is meant to be a gracious gift from God, not a task or obligation. It is an opportunity to draw inspiration and strength from one's relationship with God and Jesus Christ. It is a way of continually seeking the gifts and guidance of the Holy Spirit for daily living. Prayer is a practice to cultivate throughout one's life and one that will bear much fruit. Friend, that's my hope. That's my hope for us as a community. That's my hope for my own life and my family is that we might be a people that bear much fruit. And so we go together, we stand together, and together we pray. I oftentimes say, friends, let us pray together. But I don't do it as a transition here to close but rather an invitation for each one of us for the life that we have together in Christ that we might pray together now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us and that love is definition is expanding week by week and particularly as we know that Jesus prays for us. That those words continue to go forward on our behalf that you hold us, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, our Lord. You pray for us and you know us. Lord, help us to work through together with your power and your might, the junk that we inhabit, the places in our lives where we allow 
bad thinking and evil practices to so dominate. But Lord, help us to pursue justice and goodness. Help us to live lives of humility and mercy. Help us be a people of grace day by day, extending that grace to one another and to everyone that we come in contact with. That all the world might know you, that all the world might know your love, that all the world might know their Lord and their creator. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.